Father, it's our prayer that you would speak in this time as we open your word. Oh, how we love your word. Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to bone and marrow. God, make us people who submit under the authority of your word. Make it like honey upon our lips. Cause us to see what it says and to take glory in you. For you have revealed yourself through scripture. And Lord, and your plans have chosen to reveal your truth through the preached word of your scripture. And so, Father, I pray that the Spirit would be active among us, that he would move and that he would open eyes and hearts. And for non-believers, Lord, that he would grant faith and repentance. For believers, that he would grant continual persevering faith to continue to walk in obedience to your word. Make us, God, a people of the book. Not only in name, but in function. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter 29. If you're newer to Abner Creek, you should know about us that we work uh, most regularly through scripture, chapter by chapter, verse by book, through whole books of the Bible. And so we are at chapter 29 of a wonderful book of Genesis. So a week from now, children will fill the neighborhoods all dressed as someone they're really not. Now, if you're someone who um, does not participate in trick-or-treating, please do not hear me saying Halloween is the thing of the Lord. Trick-or-treating this time of year, let me just be honest, is a good time for the church to practice Christian freedom together. There will be some who children participate, some who don't. And we need to have Christian freedom and liberty and charity toward one another in that discussion. But whether or not you or anyone practices it in the church, children no doubt will be filling the streets next week dressed as someone they are really not. So in my household, I think we're going to have one as a princess, one as a pumpkin, I think one as a superhero, and I think one as Laura Ingalls, if you know that name. Children will walk up to doors that they've never seen and They will greet people in whom they have never met and they will lay down the ultimatum, give me a treat or you will receive a trick. And most people will fearfully give in and give the treat. However, no one, at least I've never seen anyone, no one will have someone knock on their door, say trick or treat, and the person inside just become infuriated. Can you believe this child is trying to deceive me? He is saying he is Spider-Man, but he really isn't. Can you believe such a liar? No one says that, because why? Everyone understands that the dress-up is part of the fun. There's no real deceiving actually happening. However, as silly as that is in its child example, Deception in its root is a truly harmful thing. Maybe you've been seriously deceived before in your life. 
and you know it's not fun at all. Maybe someone has really hurt you through some type type of acts of deception. Maybe for years you've built a relationship on trust and then you found out later that it was all a lie. Maybe you think your boss is preparing for you a promotion at work right now and then he brings you in and he fires you. Maybe you thought you had a friend and they stabbed you in the back when you weren't looking. Maybe, I hope not, maybe some of you are in the act of deceiving now. Maybe your mom and dad think one thing about you and you know that if they knew the real truth, it wouldn't go well. Maybe you think little lies will buy you time after work to do whatever it is that you want to do that you don't want your spouse to find out about. Maybe you live one way here at Abner Creek and would be embarrassed if any of us saw you in the workplace. I hope not. Deception is a truly harmful thing. It's one of the darkest sins because it seeks in any way possible to stay out of the light, to keep the truth hidden, to cover up and to look over. And yet, when the truth is revealed, deception causes a great amount of hurt. It's like a sprinkler. And when it shoots the water, all the blades of the grass are affected, not just one. And it's here about deception that we see the theme of this text come to light. The longer one lives in deception, the higher the pile of consequences become. There's only so much you can do to cover it up before it's obvious that you have a mound of suspicious activity in your life. Deception is the key theme that will be emphasized in this text. It's a theme that we've already seen in the tendency of Jacob's life. If you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, you know that Jacob is in fact known as a deceiver. In fact, in this narrative that we read, he's on the run from his family. He's deceived his father. His brother hates him and wants to kill him. He was scheming with his mother. Deception is nothing new to Jacob. What will be new in this text is the consequence that comes as a result of his deception. This text will show Jacob's sin catching up with him. And that's the truth that should cause all of us to really consider in our hearts before we participate in acts of deceit. No matter how deep the deception is or how sophisticated the cover-up is, this is what we are reminded of in this text. This is the main point of the sermon. In deception, you will reap what you sow. In deception, you will reap what you sow. Now, to some of you, that sounds like a really worldly phrase. And in fact, much of our world does use that phrase. How many times does a car speed through town and on the other side, they get caught and everybody else goes by them and they say, well, you reap what you sow. How many times does the world look at a unmarried couple 
engaged in premarital sex and then they get pregnant and the world says, well, you reap what you sow. How many times will someone burn bridges of relationships and then have no one there to help them when they need it and the world says, you reap what you sow. You made your bed, now you lie in. Of course, you've heard these. This is the language our world uses and I even hesitated it to use it this morning because of just a complete misrepresentation that our world uses in it. However, this is a phrase the Bible actually uses. Maybe you caught it when Steve read it just a moment ago. It's not a worldly phrase, it's a biblical phrase. The world has simply borrowed biblical language and have twisted it in really harmful ways. Given the fact that the world misuses the terminology, I'll explain a little bit later how. We must not shrink back from what Scripture clearly teaches, such as Galatians 6, 7, what we'll soon see. But for now, as we're jumping into this text, just let it be echoing in your mind as we read this narrative. In deception, you reap what you sow. Look with me in Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. Verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was... He was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me. What shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. 
So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. In deception, you reap what you sow. Another popular phrase that you've probably heard is, oh, the web we weave when we try to deceive. So this is Jacob's story. He's on his journey to Haran. He's going to find a wife from distant relatives. He gets close to his destination. He runs up into these shepherds and their flocks are all hanging out by this large well. It's like they're waiting on something. And if you remember, Abraham had his encounters with wells with Abimelech. And when he sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And then Isaac had his encounters with wells as he searched for land to dwell in. And now Jacob is about to have his own experience with the well. Jacob comes near to this well. There are already three flocks of, sh of sheep waiting in line for water. We think, well, what are they waiting on? And the text describes that they all are gathered around this well, but the well has a huge stone over its opening. Evidently, this was to protect from contamination or from thieves. Not quite sure. But there's these band of shepherds. They would meet together. They'd remove the stone together. They would water their flocks together. When Jacob pulls up, I can kind of imagine the shepherds kind of giving him a sideways look. Just barely acknowledging his presence as they're just sitting around on the rocks waiting for the other shepherds to arrive. This is their normal routine. Jacob is the outsider. Perhaps you can understand how this may feel. Have you ever been engaged in a conversation with someone and you can tell immediately that they don't want to talk? And you know because they only give you the bare minimum responses, right? They're just keeping it so distant. This is what this conversation feels like to me. It feels like a group of construction workers maybe and they all know each other. They have their routine, this is their environment, this is their way of doing things. They're all sitting around the water cooler when management walks up and he tries to shoot the bull with them, right? And it just doesn't work because corporate just doesn't fit. It's what it feels like. Look at verse four of this text. 
Jacob engages in conversation with them. They're all sitting around. Jacob is the one who breaks the silence. He says, my brothers, where are you from? They respond, we're from Haran. Not even a, and where are you from? Hmm. Jacob says, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They say, we know him. Jacob must have been mumbling under his breath like, man, this is a hard crowd. Well, how's he doing? Is everything well with him? They say, it is well. Oh, look, here comes his daughter in the distance now. Like, go talk to her. (laughs) Jacob sees her coming, and then verse 7 says, He says to the shepherds, behold, it is high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. In other words, Jacob says, men, it's, it's, it's noon. Why are you pulling all the herd together? Like water them and get back out there and start pasturing them, fatten them up. The day's not over yet. Let's get to work. And this is odd. The outsider is given these trade shepherds instructions. Like who is he to do that? And what does he know? I think this is Jacob actually acting in his conniving self once again. He's planning something. He's, he's scheming for some reason. Maybe he just, he wants them to get it done and to get them away so that he can talk to Rachel by himself. Not exactly sure. But the shepherds quickly correct him. He's, in verse 8, you can see it. They basically say, listen, partner, this is not what we do here. We all come together. We water together. And so eventually Rachel shows up. And this happens. Look at verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with the father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. I picture Jacob like showing off for Rachel. And he watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. That's probably a more like a family greeting, not an intimate kiss. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. This is similar to, if you remember, Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for Isaac. It happens at the well. But this time, remember, when Abraham sent his servant, Rebekah came and she watered the camels. But now it's reversed. Here, Jacob comes and he's doing the watering while Rachel is watching. He tells Rachel he's family. She runs in excitement to go tell her father. Her father welcomes him in. Verse, seven, verse 14 says that Jacob stayed there for a month. imagine staying somewhere for a month. I'm sure Jacob helped out around the house, maybe in the cooking, in the watering the sheep, fixing the fences. He's helping out. And so Laban says in verse 15, look, just because we're kin doesn't mean that you should work for me for free. He says, tell me what would be a, a, a good wage for you. And as Jacob is thinking of his answer, the text tells us about Laban's two daughters. His oldest daughter is named Leah. Verse 17, she's described as having 
weak eyes. That doesn't mean that she can't see well. It's an expression referencing the lack of sparkle or beauty in her eyes and her appearance. The text goes on to say that he had a younger daughter, Rachel, and described her as being beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob's thinking, he's looking, he's examining, and so he answers, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me your daughter, Rachel. Now, it appears that Jacob may be making a decision here based upon looks, right? That's the context of the text. There's a danger in this logic. I'll just make a point of application here. If you're unmarried, you will be tempted, perhaps, to make the appearance of another individual your highest priority when thinking through a relationship. Young men, the appearance of the girl that you may be interested in is not most important. The question we should be asking is, does she love Jesus? Does she love the church? Is she striving to go in godliness? I remember Collier's grandmother gave her the advice growing up of find someone who loves God more than they love you. These are the questions we want to be asking. Young women, you may be tempted to find your value in how you compare in looks to other girls. You may be tempted to think that you're only beautiful if you look like what the world calls beautiful. You may be tempted to try to please other people and their perception of you. In either case, brothers and sisters, hear the words of scriptures. Proverbs 31, 30 says, charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Women and young girls, do you know what God calls beautiful? A woman who loves him with all of her heart. Men and young men, you can spend a lot of miserable years with what the world calls beautiful. But if you find a woman who loves the Lord above all, Scripture describes it like this, an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. You can spend miserable years with searching for what looks good on the outside or you can live with what is more precious than jewels I thank God every day for the greatest earthly gift ever given to me my wife who loves the Lord who wants to follow him in all she does it is a tremendous blessing I also think she's beautiful in appearance now man let me protect you here as I'm making this application don't go home with good intentions and say, honey, I married you for your godliness, not your looks. <laughs> that will end badly for you. But if your wife is godly, why don't you go and tell her today how much you appreciate her, how much you appreciate her love for the Lord and, and even how attractive that is to you. Jacob desires Rachel and he's, he's willing to work seven years for her. This is what was called a bride price in the ancient Near East. A man would go to a father 
and they would work out a deal for the price of the daughter. And here, he worked seven years and the text says it flew by because of his love for her. And look at verse 21, you can fast forward seven years, the time has come. Laban throws a wedding feast and Jacob prepares to consummate his new marriage. Now up to this point, everything's working out perfectly. Jacob seems to think. Everything seems to be smoothed over. Remember when Jacob took the birthright from Esau for a cup of soup? Well, that just seems to be forgotten. Remember when he stole the inheritance from Esau and Isaac? Well, that's not even mentioned here. Remember when he was conniving and, and scheming with his mom? Long time ago now. Deceiving Isaac, it all seems to be past. And now he's met this beautiful wife. He's worked the bride price for her. He's celebrated this elaborate wedding. Everything is perfect. Until verse 23. Look at verse 23. But in the evening he took, Laban that is, in the evening Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why did you deceive me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give you the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week for this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Isn't it so ironic? The deceiver has been deceived. After the wedding party, Jacob expects his new bride to come into the tent with him, and a woman does come in, but it's not Rachel. It's Leah. And in the darkness of night, Jacob doesn't know until the morning. The, the similarities of deception here are so ironic. You remember Rebecca plotting behind the scene to prop up Jacob? And now we see Laban plotting behind the scene for Leah. Remember Jacob goes in and he acts like Isaac to Esau? And now Leah goes in when it was supposed to be Rachel. Remember Isaac finds out too late too far gone and so here Jacob does as well remember Isaac cries out what have you done and Jacob says why did you deceive me these similarities of deception are so ironic seven years later and Jacob's sins have found him Jacob cries injustice to Laban why did you do this and Laban's response is even ironic verse 26 it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn it's kind of like that's a subtle jab is it not Jacob you may be the youngest in your family and you may receive the benefits here but that's not how we do it in these parts so you can have Rachel but you get Leah first and you have to work another seven years in deception you reap what you sow. Everything was going great until it wasn't. Maybe everyone would forget about Jacob's deception. 
God didn't. Maybe it would never be mentioned again until it was. I mentioned Galatians 6 earlier. Steve read this. I want to invite you to turn there, actually. Galatians 6. I want you to look at this truth of sowing and reaping presented there. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul is making the point that if you live by the Spirit, then your life should reflect the ways of the Spirit. But if you live by the flesh, then your lives are going to reflect the ways of the world. He says, live by the Spirit, follow the Lord. Live by the flesh, follow the world. And then he says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. Now, isn't it interesting it says deceived? What a connection. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Jacob is living this truth right before our eyes. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. And that's exactly what Jacob is. Thinking that, you know, the past things that I've done, living in the flesh, no repentance for, like nobody will ever find out. Do not be deceived. Galatians 6, 7, God is not mocked. Do you remember when Jacob's standing before Isaac? He says, who are you? And Jacob just lies. He says, I'm Isaac. He says, are you really? He says, yes, dad, I'm Isaac. And, and Isaac says, well, how'd you get back from hunting so quickly? And what did Jacob say? It was the Lord our God who gave me success. Just blasphemous, spitting from his lips. And Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You don't think God didn't take notice of his name being used in vain? You don't think God saw Jacob prospering in blatant falsehood? God will not be mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And here, Jacob is reaping out of the cores of deception he previously sown. The same truth is in Proverbs 22, 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. You know, the Bible actually has terrifying things to say about deception. The amount of t attention given to this sin in the Bible should cause us all to tremble before even thinking of, a, of entering into it. Consider, first of all, with me how the Bible talks about our own sinful condition. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Not the heart is evil, though it is. Not the heart is fickle, though it is. Not the heart is stubborn, though it is. The heart is deceitful. Friends, we should never utter the phrase, follow your heart. Oh, sure, you can follow your heart if you want to be deceived. How many people make all their big decisions in life based upon subjective, emotional feelings they feel inside? One of the most challenging parts of my job as a pastor is trying to keep people from making emotional decisions and helping them make biblical decisions. The heart is deceitful. It will come to your door and promise you all sorts of treats and will trick you in the end. 
And friends, this is scary because this is what the Bible describes our hearts like. Consider second the danger that the Bible describes deception as being. Proverbs 14, 8 puts it like this. Listen, the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. You want to be a fool? You want to live in folly? The Bible says live in deception. Proverbs 20, 17. Get this picture. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. The benefits you gain by deceiving, it tastes good at first. No one knows you're going to get away with it and everyone's fooled as you're running away with the sweet taste of honey in your mouth. But as you're running, it morphs into gravel and you're forced to swallow cement. Proverbs 6 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are abominations to him. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. All the actions that could have made the list, lying, scheming, deceiving does. Friends, the Bible speaks of this being our condition. The Bible speaks of the danger of deception. Finally, consider the punishment for deception. Psalm 5, 6, speaking of the Lord, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 101, 7, no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Revelation 21, 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, this should, this should frighten us all. This is not a Jacob problem. This is a human problem. And woe to any of us who would discount the seriousness of deceit. Woe to any of us who would speak in terms like, well, it's just a little white lie. It's just a little stretching of the truth. The Bible's very serious about deception. And yet, it's the currency of our world. Is it not? And we live in a cutthroat, me-first mentality culture. A nature we inherited from our parents, Adam and Eve, who looked at the fruit and in deception took it and then they themselves acted in deceit against God. Children have this nature. Do you eat the candy? No. Open the mouth, chocolate all in the teeth, right? Many of you know habitual liars. They lie so much they literally can't remember what the truth is anymore. How many bosses are deceived at work by employees who say one thing in their presence, but when they leave, it's completely different? How many media outlets do we have in our, in our world who operate with deceptive intentions? How many deals are done with the truth covered up? Friends, it's all around us. It's like people eat this for breakfast in the morning and they're energized it all day long. I remember Collier and I, when we went on our honeymoon, we went on a cruise and we stopped at one of the islands, the Caribbean islands, and we were 21 and 20, I think. I mean, um, 
I still, pe- I still have people tell me that I look so young, and I'll take that as long as I can. But, I mean, we really probably look young then by ourselves, 20 and 21, stepping on this island. I'm sure we look so naive and lost. And we had one of the locals come running up to us, and he shoves these two little baby monkeys into my hand. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. And we're, like, gawking over the monkeys. Oh, how cute, you know. Everything you would do with baby monkeys in your hand. And then he says, $10. Like, what? 10 like... You shoved the monkeys into my hand, and now he's demanding payment. It was, it was a scam, obviously. This is all around us. It's within us. Nobody likes a scam. Nobody likes to be dealt a bad deal. We want people to act fairly, and for those who don't, we want them to get what they deserve. And see, this is where the world gets this phrase. This is where the world loves to say, well, you reap what you sow. Too bad for you. And many rejoice when it happens. But friends, while this statement is true, there is a bigger statement that is true as well. I mentioned earlier how the world misuses this terminology Here's what I mean. The world gets, you reap what you sow. What they don't get is grace. This is where the world gets it wrong in two ways. First, the world does not understand the empowering grace that's needed to bring about true change. See, often the world can look at this in a too simplistic of a way, too man-centered way, kind of a mentality of if you want different results, you have to sow different seeds and you just muster it up within yourself and you just change yourself and just kick it in gear. They do not, they do not consider the empowering grace of God that is needed to actually change. It's only left in the world's mind to human effort. And there's a place for effort. That's another sermon. But it's not only human effort. John MacArthur writes this, quote, The frustration and hopelessness of humanistic psychology, psychiatry, and counseling can be traced, among other things, to their refusal to consider the immutable spiritual law of sowing and reaping. A person's character cannot change until his nature is changed. And that can only happen through the new creation that comes from trust in Jesus Christ. The world doesn't get empowering grace But second, the world does not understand, and more importantly, the world does not understand the forgiving grace that is provided for those who act in deception. Friends, this is just one story. Jacob, he's acted in deceit. He's reaping the the seeds of the results of deceit. It's one story. This story, though, is in the bigger story of what's happening in Scripture. And the overall Bible story shows that Jacob's the deceiver, and so are you and me. When we sow sin, we reap death. And this is where we need to have better news for the world than just, well, you reap what you sow. The better news is in Jesus Christ, of course. Jesus Christ did three critical things. One, he lived a perfect life without sin. Two, he died because of sin. And three, he rose from the dead over sin. Now, here's why that matters. We're almost done. If, here's why that matters. Because anyone who would 
turn from sin and turn to trust in Jesus would reap the benefits of his perfect life. And you say, well, what about my sin? That's why Jesus died. See, his perfect living was accredited to your account by faith. And your sinful, deceitful living is what led to his death. In the gospel, what Jesus has done is this. He reaps the death that you have sown in sin. And through faith in him, you reap the eternal life that he sowed by his perfect living. The world only gets you reap what you sow. They do not factor in God's bountiful, abundant grace that through faith in Jesus, the sinner can receive what he did not sow. And what the sinner did sow, Jesus takes it, pays for it, and conquers it in his resurrection. Thank God that 1 Peter 2.22 is true. It speaks of Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yes, you reap what you sow unless God acts in grace. Grace to forgive and grace to empower. I want to close with three exhortations for you. They'll be quick. One sentence exhortations, I think. In light of this, brothers and sisters, flee from deception. Think of every little deception as a little seed that will bloom into a mountain of consequence. Don't think this little deceit will never hurt anyone. Run from deception. Number two, while it's true that people reap what they sow, this is so critical. Let's leave the reaping work to God. Say, what do you mean? See, when someone sows a seed of deceit or they do something we don't like, there's a part of us that kind of takes glory in seeing them reap the thorns, the, the, the fruit of thorns, right? Like, they got what they deserve. You know, this awful waitress at lunch right now, she didn't do hardly anything. See what kind of tip I give her. Leave the reaping of thorns to God. Believer, you can model grace that the world doesn't understand. You can blow people's mind with, wait a minute, I don't deserve the kindness and the grace that you're giving to me. That's exactly right, none of us do, and this is what Jesus has done. We can model this grace. If we believe the gospel, if we love the gospel, let's live it out. And number three, rest in God's grace. There are consequences for sin, but God's grace is sufficient. Where you have committed sin, seek forgiveness for that sin and rest in God's grace to be freed from it and to live differently going forward. The God who does not ultimately give you what you deserve, but he gives you his grace instead has provided his son. Rest in that grace. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to take the sin of deception seriously. That we would see the mountain of consequences that come as a result. The amount of hurt 
that it causes. And Father, I pray even more so that for believers in the room, they would rest in the grace that you have provided. That though many of us have sown seeds of wickedness and evil and deception and lies and all sorts of things that dishonor you, Lord, because of Christ, ultimately, we receive his blessings. Cause us not to discount the severity of deception. Cause us to live differently in light of your grace. If there's people here, Lord, who are living in deceit and they don't know the freedom of Christ, Lord, open their eyes. And give them that freedom, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.